Well, I think most Christians um, probably understand the importance of worldview. I'm sure that many of you have examined different worldviews before and thought about worldview and the way that your Christianity informs the, the way you see the world or shapes the way you see the world. And the, the particular worldview that you have obviously impacts the way you live your life every single day. There's you know, been a number of, for a number of years now, Christians have been talking about this worldview um, as a, a way to see life and to sort of a grid to view things through. And um, Christians have been talking about the differences between different worldviews and the way they impact your life. You know, you have sort of an evolutionary worldview, a uh, Christian worldview, a, a, Christ, a secular humanist worldview, and the list goes on and on. And you could talk about a number of different worldviews. The way that, that that concept of worldview is typically described is sort of a list of facts that you either believe or don't believe. You know, here's the facts that a Christian worldview believes, and then here's the facts that a secular or an evolutionary worldview believes, a materialist worldview or a, a Muslim worldview or what have you. And it's sort of given as a list of facts that you deny or you affirm. And I want to try to adjust that a little bit this morning, and I want you to start thinking of your worldview as not just a list of facts, but as a a narrative and a story that you believe you exist in. That is really what a worldview is. At the most fundamental level, a worldview is a story or a narrative that you believe that you live in. Now, you may not state it that way, I believe I exist in this story, but in reality, that's, that's what it is, and that's how you live your life. And because you exist in that particular story, whatever it is, and it may be a combination of stories that you're pulling pieces from, because you exist in that story, it impacts the way you live life today. There's a meta-narrative is kind of a word for it that you immerse yourself in and you believe is the way the universe really is. Uh, one particular author said it this way, and I think this is helpful. Uh, don't get caught up with the way he says we're animals. He's just, he doesn't really think we're animals. He, he's a Christian guy. Um, but here's what he says. We are essentially storytelling animals, not because we just love a good yarn or because we enjoy being entertained, but rather because we think narratively, as it were, right? So why do your kids love stories? Why do you like stories? Why do you get caught up in a good story? Because you think in a narrative form. You tend to see things, I tend to see things as moving from this part of the narrative to this part of the narrative to this part of the narrative. And that's the way our lives work. So, for example, if you hold to a Hindu worldview, right, then you enter yourself into a narrative. And that narrative says there's a reincarnation has happened to you and you need to live a good life, right? So what has happened before, the next stage in that narrative is your life now. You need to live a good life, do good things, be kind to people, whatever it looks like, so that after your time, you will be reincarnated as something better, something more significant, and one day you'll enter eternal bliss because you've sort of reached the the top of the ladder in your reincarnation. That is a narrative. That worldview is a narrative, right? An evolutionary worldview. You think that essentially the story began with a giant explosion 
and that we're all random collections of atoms that have sort of congealed together. There's not really a soul inside of you. It's basically just material, physical existence. And that one day the sun is going to burn out. Life on earth will cease to exist as we know it. And that'll be it. That worldview is not just a list of facts. It's a story that you see yourself living in. Another author said this, I can only answer the question, right? I can only answer this question. What am I to do? Which we're all asking that question. If I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself as a part? Our morality comes from the story that we believe we exist in. Your morality will be different if you enter the evolutionary worldview and you live in that story or if you enter the Muslim worldview or the Hindu worldview or whatever it may be, it'll be different because of the narrative, because of the story that you exist in. Now this morning, obviously, we're going to talk about the biblical story. And the biblical story, we believe, is the true story of the world. This is the right story. This is the narrative. This is the beginning the middle, and the end of the story, and we believe we exist in that story. If you think about Scripture, just just think about it for a moment, the way it moves. It begins at the beginning of creation and moves through the timeline of history and ends at the new creation. It's a narrative that flows. It's a grand, sweeping story. And sometimes it's, it's hard for us to think of it that way because... You know, we, we get this Bible, and it's 66 books, and it's written by all these different authors, and it's all these different genres. There's, there's poetry in it. There's narrative. There's letters, and, you know, we, it's sort of arranged in a funny way sometimes, and we don't know what comes after what. And so we, we, we like to study the, in, the individual passages, and so we sort of miss the entire forest because we get caught up in these individual sections of Scripture. And... That's a fine thing to do, but sometimes it's helpful to pull back and say, okay, what is the sweeping narrative of this, and how do the pieces fit into the whole? How do the little stories help to make up the whole sweeping worldview that the Bible gives us from creation to new creation? And so the drama of Scripture, the story of Scripture, impacts your sanctification, the sweeping worldview. And you situate your life within this worldview, and then you live that, that worldview, that narrative, that story out. And so this morning, as quickly as we can, this is probably a little ambitious for, for us to do this in 20, 25 minutes here, right? But uh, we'll, we'll take a, a crack at it this morning, and we'll come back to this over and over again to try to get this nailed down. But I want to show you how the Gospel of Mark fits into this sweeping story of Scripture. And this is going to be a really high flyover, but it'll be an introduction to this this story that we'll go back to over and over again. And I've taken a, there's a particular book called The Drama of Scripture, uh, Craig Bartholomew, Michael Goheen. There's a number of books like this, but this one's particularly helpful in the way they divide up the biblical story into six different pieces. Sorry, it's not seven, I know. It's six. But they divide it up into six different pieces, and uh, I think it's really helpful and easy to understand, and it centers on the theme of the kingdom, which I I think is the theme that ties Scripture together, right? So I want to show you these six pieces around this theme of kingdom, and we'll talk through them and try to explain this to help you see the flyover, and hopefully it'll be beneficial this morning, all right? So 
The first one of these is that God establishes his kingdom. And this is creation, all right? God establishes his kingdom. This is creation. You all know the early chapters of Genesis well, I'm sure. Um, But I want to make sure that you think of these chapters not just as a way to defend young earth creationism, which it is, but don't think that's the only purpose that God has for these chapters. These chapters establish God as the ruler, as the king, and as him setting up his kingdom. There's so much here that's helpful to us. He speaks the universe into existence. He's the obvious sovereign one over everything. He speaks it into existence. Everything instantly obeys his voice and his commands. And as you get into the first chapter of Genesis, one of the things I love about this chapter, the way it describes God's creation, is that at the end of every day, it says that God looked at his creation and he said, it's good. (laughs) It's really good. I've done a good job here. And I love that because the physical universe, the creation, is inherently good. It's inherently meant for us to be enjoyed and to delight in the things of creation. God delights in it. And on the sixth day of creation, it reaches its climax in many ways. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You're familiar with these verses, but let me just read these and show you how this fits into this idea of kingdom. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So notice what happens here. There's a lot of talk about what it means to be made in God's image, but one of the primary things it means is that God delegates his kingly authority to Adam and Eve, to mankind. And they are supposed to care for the earth, subdue the earth, and use the earth to better human existence, to enjoy creation, to enjoy a relationship with God in creation. Think of it as Adam and Eve, human beings, are vice regents. They rule over creation as a representative of God. And so God establishes his kingly rule here. His kingdom is a place where mankind reigns in his stead and under his authority. And they're to live reflecting God's authority in creation and with one another. And they're to live in relationship with God as his image bearers. And mankind is to shine his glory into all of creation as they have dominion over it and rule over it. So God sets up his kingdom here. Think about it as God's people living in God's place under God's rule here. It's God's specific people living in his kingdom under his rule and reign. That's what happens in the early chapters of Genesis. God has set up his kingdom. And that brings us to our second piece in the biblical story. This is what you would probably expect. Rebellion in the kingdom, the fall. So Adam and Eve have everything they need. I mean, if you read the early chapters of Genesis, it's wonderful. They have all that they need. They enjoy a special relationship with God. And despite that, when you get to chapter 3, they decide they know better than 
this good, sovereign, loving God. They listen to the voice of the serpent. They trust his words rather than trusting this good God who has given them all that they need. One of God's commands to Adam was to guard, to guard, to protect the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, this serpent gets into the garden. And not only does he get into the garden, Adam doesn't do anything about it. And Adam is apparently standing right there while his wife Eve is lied to by the serpent. And what should have happened is Adam should have taken matters into his own hand, killed the serpent, kicked it out of the garden, and protected the sanctuary that God had made there for them. The serpent challenges God's authority, and Adam and Eve trust his words rather than continuing to trust God. And the results are tragic. Um, If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis 3. I want to show you something in these curses that I think is important for us to see this morning. So Adam and Eve decide to trust the serpent. They they essentially worship the creation rather than the creator, as Romans 1 describes it. That's what Adam and Eve do here. And so the, the relationship with God is instantly severed. They no longer walk with him in the cool of the day. And God pronounces a series of curses on creation in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 17. So he pronounces a curse on the serpent, on the man, the woman, and also on the land, right? So I want to divide these curses up into three categories. We won't read through these verses, but there are three categories here. You can see them on the screen. The conflict between the seeds, conflict between those who follow the serpent and those who are in the line that comes from the woman, that's found in verse 15 there. So there's conflict between the seeds. There's conflict. There's difficulty in childbearing. So it's not just pain and having children. It's also difficulty in conceiving. Difficulty in the relationship between the man and the woman that brings children into the world. There's a number of women in Scripture that have difficulty conceiving, and the Bible draws our attention to that as a result of this tragic event here in Genesis chapter 3. And so there's conflict, there's difficulty in childbearing, and there's also difficulty in conflict with the land. God had given them physical creation to enjoy and to have dominion over, and now it's going to fight back against them. It's not going to be easy for them to take dominion over creation, over the land, and it's going to be hard for them to provide what they need as they cultivate creation. And so... Keep these in mind. We'll go back to these in just a moment. But God's image in mankind has been twisted. His his rule over creation has been broken, but his task has become much more difficult in the midst of this. And so rather than taking dominion over creation, Adam and Eve allowed the serpent to take dominion over them. And of course, death, destruction, disease, all of that follows in the wake of their decision. But notice... In the midst of this, and this is so important for how you see the rest of Scripture fitting together, in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of these curses, there's a promise of hope. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as Adam and Eve are sitting there, probably listening to God pronounce these curses, when they heard those words that a descendant of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent, 
they would have heard those words as a promise of restoration, of making things right. Now, in some ways, it's a very vague promise, but they would have heard that as a promise of hope. And you can even see later in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, when Eve has more children, she says, I've received a man from the Lord. She's kind of thinking, maybe this is the one who's going to, to crush the head of the serpent and undo the work of the serpent. And so these, these, this promise here, they would have heard as a promise to make things right. And this carries through the rest of the biblical story. And that brings us to the third act here in the biblical story. Hopefully it'll click through. There we go. The king chooses Israel, redemption initiated, all right? So as you turn the page to Genesis chapter 4, you've got this hope in mind, but you also have this broken relationship between the man and the woman, the ground, and all of this, and things go bad really quickly. Genesis 4 through 11 just continually unfold to us the deepening of sin in, in human hearts. And in Genesis 11, you kind of have the culmination of this with the Tower of Babel. It's not just individual sin, it's corporate. It's people getting together as a culture in opposition to God and his authority, in rebellion against him. And around the story of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11, you have all this list of all these nations, and you have genealogies there. And the implication is that all of those nations and all of those people that are involved in those nations have been, have been broken and twisted by this curse in Genesis chapter 3. But then flip over to Genesis 12, and in Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3, you encounter this amazing promise of hope here. And God chooses one man and promises him essentially three Things. Now, I want to show you how God's promises to Abraham here reverse the curses of Genesis chapter 3, when he gives to the, the, the woman and the man and the serpent there. Look at this. There's conflict between seeds, and God's promise to Abraham is that he will bring blessing to the nations in Genesis chapter 12. There's conflict in childbearing, but God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a great nation. Even though it's difficult to have children, look what I'm going to do for you. And there's conflict with the land, but ultimately God's going to give Abraham and his descendants this bountiful land that is flowing with milk and honey. And so in these promises, you have God showing the pathway of how he's going to make things right. And how he's going to fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And so this is the beginning of the nation of Israel right here. And these promises in Genesis chapter 12 carry us through the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, if you think about these promises, the development of these promises is the biblical story through the rest of the Old Testament. It's God's plan of working things out and making things right through Abraham and his descendants. I mean, think about the rest of the book of Genesis. Who does it focus on? It focuses on the family line of Abraham, the main family line, who ultimately will result in the kingly Messiah. It's, it's Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob. And then in Genesis chapter 50, there's this emphasis on Judah as the one through whom the king will come. 
And then in the book of Exodus, we find God having really fulfilled this promise to Abraham with millions of descendants, a great nation, but we find those people not in the land that he has promised them. And so the whole movement of the book of Exodus, really through the rest of the Torah, all the way through Deuteronomy, is God guiding and leading his new nation that he has developed toward the land that he has promised them, which is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 here. And listen to Exodus 19 when God initiates the nation of Israel. And look what he says to them here at the end of this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're to bless the rest of the nations. They're to be distinct. They're to bless the nations through the way that they worship God. After the, after the books of Moses, Joshua obviously tells how the people of God come into the land that he has promised them. And then the book of Judges, despite being God's people in God's land that he has promised them, they certainly don't bring blessings to the nations. Instead, the brokenness and the sinfulness of their hearts is revealed over and over again. It's not enough to just be in God's land. It's not enough to just be God's people. Something more is needed for them. And so this pattern continues. And then in 1 Samuel, God installs a king to help them, to lead them, to to guide them toward walking with God. And things really seem to be going well. Under David and under Solomon, a temple is built and they can worship God freely. And maybe, maybe they're starting to be the fulfillment of these promises and a light to the nations. And then after Solomon, and really under Solomon's reign, things go tragically wrong. And the rest of the Old Testament story shows us how the kings are broken, and then the prophets indict the kings and the people for their sinfulness and their brokenness. It's obvious as you read the Old Testament that the people need something more. They need new hearts. They need a complete change of who they are. And so the prophets indict them for that. And ultimately, in the Old Testament, what happens is the people, just like Adam and Eve, are kicked out of God's land. And they go into exile. But even in the midst of their exile, the prophets tell them something good is going to happen. Just like Israel was in Egypt and God brought them into the promised land, there's going to be a second exodus that's going to happen through God's Messiah and restoration is going to happen. And that's how the prophetic books in the Old Testament function. Despite exile, God is not going to cast his people away. He's going to remain faithful to them. And those books look toward the future. Now, this is where the Gospel of Mark comes in. And you have to see that general narrative of the Old Testament to understand what's happening in the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of Mark. As you open to the Gospel of Mark, what did we see right off the bat? There's a quote from Isaiah. And we see that the Gospel writers see Jesus and his coming as the fulfillment of this whole narrative from the Old Testament. These Old Testament expectations one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, the, one who, the king who is coming, the one who's going to make things right, who's going to bring God's blessings, who's going to bring favor to Israel and favor and blessing to the nations. All of those promises and expectations, the gospel writers see those as fulfilled in Jesus. 
And so that's why they, they quote the Old Testament so much, and they allude back to the Old Testament, because they want you to see that Mark fits within this kingdom narrative. So Jesus is presented as the long-awaited hope of Israel. He's like Adam, but he's going to succeed where Adam fails. He's like Moses, but he gives a better law. He writes the law in their hearts, gives them new hearts. He's God incarnate, and he's come to bless and to save his people. And he's going to deal with their foundational problem, their need for a new heart, and their need for spiritual life. And so that's why Jesus comes onto the scene proclaiming the kingdom. Because what he's saying is God is going to make things right through his arrival. God's kingdom has arrived, and his miracles are an illustration of that. And they're showing the way it's going to look when he ultimately does make things right. And he's going to slowly reveal that kingdom to them. And yet, that kingdom is not, as we've seen, is not all one of power and authority. It's a kingdom that can only come as Jesus, surprisingly, to the disciples, as Jesus gives himself up and sacrifices himself on the cross in order to redeem them and buy them back from the slavery to sin. And so, the old creation, the broken creation, comes in Adam, and the new creation, the kingdom, the setting right of things, comes through Jesus Christ. And so when he ascends to heaven, he initiates this next part of the story, the spreading of the news of the king, the mission of the church. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 real quickly. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking in terms of only a physical kingdom and kicking Rome out. But look what Jesus says to them. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but here's what you are to do. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Jesus continues to turn their attention toward the proclamation of the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Go to the very end of the book of Acts. After all the ministry that happens, we find Paul in Rome, and look at the last two verses. And what is Paul doing? The gospel has expanded almost to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. And look what he's doing. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He's proclaiming that God's new creation, God's kingdom has arrived in Christ. He's connecting that back to the Old Testament. Jesus is the subject of his message. And that's the, that's the portion of the story that you and I find ourselves in today, right? We're still doing this. And the rest of the New Testament is about this happening. It's specific letters. It's encouragement to churches who are making this happen around the world. They're maturing saints. They're growing saints in the likeness of Jesus Christ. They're making disciples. They're proclaiming the kingdom. And our church here is an outgrowth of this. This is what we are to be doing. Exactly what he says here. This is the portion of the biblical story that we find ourselves in. And as we're right here doing this work, continuing this work that Paul was doing, 
we anticipate the final chapter in the story, the return of the king. Redemption completed. We don't have a lot of time, but turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22, the last chapter. Something here about how the biblical story ends. I love this. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You can see the blessing that has come to the nations there. No longer will there be anything accursed. (laughs) Set Genesis 3 right. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And look what happens. And they will reign forever and ever. What were Adam and Eve supposed to do? They were to reign. They were to have dominion. They were to subdue the earth and live in relationship with God. And that was broken. And God sent Jesus Christ to make that right. And here at the end of the story, you find that things have been made right. When the king returns, everything is made right. And we will reign with him. That's the glory of Jesus Christ coming. We get to reign and have dominion and rule with him. And so that's the narrative that you and I find ourselves in. And as we finish up this very brief look at that, I want to read to you an introduction to a children's book. This children's book is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is what the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, says at the beginning. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but, as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. So read your Bible, read that story, and enjoy it. And revel in the grace of God that he came to rescue 
you and I. Fit your life into that story. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the story it tells. We're thankful for how even this morning our hearts are warmed with affection for Christ over the the glories that we see of his rescue mission of us. We are undeserving of that. And yet, in your grace, before the foundation of the world, you put that plan in motion, and you've executed that plan, and we are the, the recipients of that goodness, Lord. We're so thankful for it. Even now, as we, as we meditate on the climax of that story, of the death of Jesus Christ, help our hearts to be drawn to him, Help us to fit our lives more purposefully into this grand narrative that we've seen this morning. We love you. In Christ's name we pray.